This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, team. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you, as always. Appreciate you joining. Appreciate your time today. That's how we like it here in the hut. We are joined now by our friend Matt Continetti. He's the editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. You can read his latest on freebeacon.com and on Twitter at Continetti. Mr. Continetti, great to have you. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's talk a bit about the Jeff Sessions situation. I managed to see some of the hearing this morning. I always get frustrated when the hecklers or whatever we call them, the, the shouty, protesty people, I can't tell what they're saying because I know it's going to be both belligerent and stupid. I couldn't hear it. Uh, but there's been some of that. And there's a little bit of a dust up because I think a member of the media said something vile about how Sessions had an Asian grandchild on his lap or something like that. What's going on with the Sessions confirmation so far? Well, from what I can tell, the Sessions confirmation hearing is going remarkably well for Jeff Sessions. Uh, He's been able to answer all of the questions um, and uh, issues uh, thrown at him by the Democrats on the committee. Um, interruptions by the code pink crowd are nothing new on Capitol Hill. Um, and unfortunately, they've, the Capitol Police has never really figured out a way to prevent them from getting into the hearings. But once they start uh, interrupting the hearings, they're quickly removed. And, yeah, there's some sniping on Twitter um, by the usual gang of idiots. But overall, I think uh, Jeff Sessions is having a good first day of, of confirmation hearings. Now, there's, there's been a lot of talk about how they're going to go after him on issues of race. What is the contention that the left has here, and how do you think it will be met both by Jeff Sessions and just Republicans who are clearly going to defend him in these hearings if things get nasty? Well, the, uh, the, the major attacks on Sessions uh, go back to uh, comments he is said to have made decades ago uh, about the races. Um, these are denied by him. Uh, there's ample evidence that, that that's hearsay um, and not to be taken seriously. There's, of course, you know, any accusation of racism on Sessions, he can easily rebut, I think. Um, he's done a lot of work for the black community in Alabama uh, in his career in politics and as a senator. Uh, there's a photo of him with John Lewis, who is about to testify against him, on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, uh, celebrating the civil rights movement. And indeed, Cory Booker, who in in an unprecedented move is going to testify against him. I'm not sure what he's going to say, but uh, Cory Booker has praised him in the past. So um, I think that I think this argument is pretty weak uh, and it's doubtful that it will affect his confirmation. 
you know, Sessions has a great advantage, which is he's a senator. And um, when you're in the have been in the Senate for as long as he has, uh, some two decades, uh, he has relationships with both Republicans and Democrats. And so uh, I expect him to him to be confirmed. The stuff that they're saying, though, uh, or that the, the left has been putting out there, that he ha- is sympathetic to groups such as the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, this is really, you know, is is it because now anything is acceptable to throw at Trump, no matter how untrue or how unfair, that now seems to extend with much of the media to anybody who would work for Trump? Because that's kind of the feeling that I get, although I think that with Mattis and a few others, they'll know to that they probably can't get away with quite as much. But with Sessions, a lot of the stuff that they've been putting out there is, is it's just dirty it's just the worst and it's obviously not true right well the, i mean the civil rights uh for lack of a better word institutions have have always been against sessions uh because you know he he thinks that the voting right, rights act needs to be modernized that the situation in the united states today is not the same as it was in 1965 he's very tough on crime um, so if he, he opposed to many uh, to the agenda of kind of the you know institutionalized civil rights movement in this country, which is different, by the way, from even the majority of black opinion in America. Um, on the issue of immigration, for example, I think if you polled African American communities, you'd find that they probably line up more closely with with Sessions than than the um, institutional like uh, civil rights organizations like the NAACP. I mean, school choice is another issue where the NAACP really just, uh, I think, disgraced itself uh, last year, when late last year, when it voted to oppose school choice, basically because it was on the bankroll of the teachers' unions. Well, there are many black families uh, around the country who, who would support school choice, school choice like, like Jeff Sessions does. So I, I think these arguments, the Democrats have to say them uh, because because the the civil rights groups are such an important part of their coalition, such as it is now, uh, and they have to fundraise off them. That's always a great way to raise money if you're a Democrat is by accusing Republicans of racism. But I don't actually think they're going to have much effect on Sessions um, or on his confirmation. Is there anybody that you think is going to probably get successfully opposed any any senior official that you see real problems for of the of the named trump nominees thus far or do you think most will get through with with maybe some bruising to their reputations but nothing catastrophic well i mean look the democrats are in the minority so uh, and it was the democrats who three years ago changed the rules so that appointees and judges lower than the supreme court level can be um approved uh, into office uh, by a simple majority majority vote. So the Democrats created that precedent. So it's going to be hard for them to stop. And the real problem would come if something emerged from the hearing or some piece of opposition research made Republicans scared. And there I think you have to look at a few of the candidates. Um, uh, Steve Mnuchin, the candidate for Treasury, he's not, really, he's not well known in D.C. He's a Hollywood producer and investor. Um, how he'll perform, I think, will be important. Um, Scott Pruitt, uh, you know, he's uh, from Oklahoma. He's a state's attorney general. He's incredibly accomplished. But, you know, if there's one core component to the Democratic coalition, it is the environmental uh, movement. And so the Democrats are going to try everything they can to to stop that. Uh, I would look at Rex Tillerson, again, for the reasons that uh, ExxonMobil is demonized among Democrats. Um, And also, 
you know, Tillerson has to worry a little bit about um, the Republicans on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, because of his uh, friendliness with Vladimir Putin, or at least his personal relationship with Vladimir Putin. Tillerson's one of the few Americans, I think there are only three, who actually can see Putin, uh, who's non-president, non-president level Americans who can see Putin um, rather easily. And the other two are Henry Kissinger and Steven Seagal. So I think that might come up in, in Tillerson. Well, Steven Seagal, I mean, that makes, per- that makes perfect sense, Matt. Let's not get crazy. Well, he, uh, Seagal and Putin are close friends. I know. Putin, Putin just made Seagal an honorary citizen. Who else? I mean, Putin's got judo covered, but who's going to show him the Aikido uh, skills that will give him the edge the next time he's in some hand-to-hand combat? Absolutely. Yeah, I I, I think Tillerson will get through, too. It's just um, he'll have to to, uh, perform pretty well. But there's a great report in the Wall Street Journal today about his negotiating style, which is apparently legendary in the business community. And from reading that report, I I don't think Tillerson will have any problem with the, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. What give us a give us a one liner? What's his negotiating style? Sometimes he'll just stare down his opponents. Mainly, uh, these are you know Russian uh, oligarchs and uh, former intel officials. But he's been known to stare them down in meetings until they accept his terms. He's also been known to like uh, strategize temper tantrums, right? So he'll get up and he'll throw a book across the room entirely on purpose in order to get the. Uh, uh, the guy on the other end of the table to agree to his terms. You can see why Donald Trump would like would like Rex. Wow! So Rex Tillerson doesn't negotiate with people. He stares at them until he gets the answers he needs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of like Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris, exactly. Yeah. Tell me a bit about your piece in the Free Beacon uh, on thefreebeacon.com. dot com. Send in the head clowns, the delusional Democrats as twenty seventeen. Why are they delusional, sir? Well, they think they still run Washington. It's fascinating. Um, you know, we're a few days, we're about a week in into the new reality, but isn't, that reality has not um, uh, intruded on the Democrats' brains. The Democrats have been on a roll, really, since 2005. They took the, they took the Congress in 06. They took the presidency two years after that. And even though they lost the Congress piece by piece, won 2010 the House, 2014 the Senate, they still had Obama, who was basically immune from criticism. So it's only now where you have Trump becoming the president in about 10 days and you have unified Republican control on Capitol Hill that the Democrats are, should be on their back heels, but they don't realize it. And you listen to Chuck Schumer saying he's going to try to keep the Antonin Scalia seat open. He's going to try to delay some of these cabinet appointments until the spring and early summer. It's delusional. Uh, he doesn't have much power. He's the minority leader. And if he really goes, um, you know, head to head with McConnell on this first Supreme Court placement, uh, the the Scalia seats replacement, um, it's very possible McConnell will change the filibuster rules for the Supreme Court, and then that will completely defang the Democrats for as long as they're in the minority. So if they don't play nice, Republicans can up the ante even more. And the precedent was set by Democrats in the first place of getting rid of the filibuster. Right. So there's they, they right. don't really have much. Of the, if, if they try the serious obstruction game, especially with nominees, nominees to the Supreme Court now, they're going to run into a buzzsaw here. They're going to have some real problems. They very well could. And remember, they're up against somebody uh, that they don't quite understand. And that's Donald Trump. And so far that their their attacks on Trump are very similar to the attacks uh, that Hillary Clinton and then Trump's Republican nominees made against Trump. And that just don't phase they don't phase Trump and they don't seem to have any effect on his um, 
on his ability to maneuver or on his ability to uh, get things done. He's still pursuing his agenda regardless of what Chuck Schumer throws at him. And indeed, he called, you know, he responds in kind by calling Schumer the head clown, which is where I got the title for that column. So <clears throat> until Democrats realize that they're in the minority and start getting a little bit canny about opposition, I think they're in trouble. Remember, it was Schumer and Rahm Emanuel who in 2006 helped the Democrats take over the Congress by really recruiting candidates, aggressively recruiting candidates who would appeal to white suburbanites and to the white working class. Now, though, uh, their political strategy seems to be to abandon white voters altogether, and I don't think I don't think that's a winning strategy. Let me ask you, uh, Matt, one more before we uh, let you get back to running things over in the Free Beacon newsroom. Uh, if you had to give this administration an epilogue, uh, the Obama administration, what would it be? I think it's Jimmy Carter for two terms. You know, I we'd always uh, the conservatives have always viewed Barack Obama as Jimmy Carter, and so that's one of the reasons so many of us thought he would only have one term in office. But the truth is, he only, he's Jimmy Carter with two terms, and he's still being repudiated. There's no other way in my mind to interpret the last uh, year's election other than an, a repudiation of Barack Obama and his agenda. And even if it, that repudiation isn't personal, I mean, you see this in the polls, Americans like Obama the person, they like Obama the father, especially. Uh, they have really looked down on his agenda since Obamacare in 2010. And as that, uh, as that agenda became increasingly estranged from uh, public opinion, from reality even, um, they've liked it less and less. And so I think with Trump's election and with unified Republican control in Washington and with indeed with the Republican Party at its highest point since the 1920s, you, you have to see a, just a very widespread rejection of Barack Obama, just like uh, there was a rejection of Jimmy Carter in 1980. Matt Continetti is the editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. He is at Continetti on Twitter. Give him a follow. And uh, Matt, Happy New Year to you, sir. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Happy New Year. 888-900-3393-TEAM. We will be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. Team, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. I love this. This is great. The Associated Press fact-checks the the, uh, allegation or the uh, whatever, the statement by Donald Trump that Meryl Streep is overrated. 
Uh, Meryl Streep overrated. Donald Trump picks a decorated star. Uh, Trump's overrated. This is from the Associated Press, everybody, the AP, okay? Trump's overrated remark follows one he made in 2015 to The Hollywood Reporter when she called Streep one of his favorite actresses and a fine person, too. While overrated is an opinion, Streep, who took aim at Trump in her speech while accepting the Globe's Lifetime Achievement Award, holds the record for the most Academy Award nominations of any actor. She has earned 19 Oscar nominations and three wins, blah, 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 uh, all, the, all the rest of it. So, yeah, they, they fact-checked Trump's Meryl Streep is overrated. So now you can't even say that without the fact-checkers uh, jumping on you and telling you that you're, you're wrong. You're wrong. I almost tweeted out last night that while Meryl Streep's speech was really annoying... The Devil Wears Prada is like a pretty watchable movie, and she's good in it. I know. I'm, I'm admitting things to you right now. We're in the trust tree. We're in the nest. I'm just going to tell you. Uh, if The Devil Wears Prada is on, there are a lot of, uh, lot of meat-eating, uh, red meat-eating, uh, America-loving freedom spreaders out there who are like, oh, Meryl's performance in this is pretty good. <laughs> the Devil Wears Prada is kind of a watchable movie. I know you're going to be like, what? Let's go back to talking about Bloodsport. But I think of myself as a renaissance man. I like all kinds of movies. Uh, so there is that. Uh, they fact-checked uh, fact on whether Meryl Streep is, in fact, overrated. Also, switching gears here for a second, uh, there was this piece that some of you may have seen over the weekend. Um, it, well, it was really a series of tweets about this guy who thinks that the Trump, uh, the, the Trump voting plumber, he's assuming he's a Trump voting plumber, is a threat to him. Uh, I've told you before about the Trump scare, such as it, such as we've been uh, discussing it here on the show. Here we go. I, I had to find this. Think Progress senior editor is scared of his plumber. Uh, so a Think Progress progressive lefty site has this guy. He's a senior editor there, and a plumber comes and visits him uh, after the 2016 election. And he he puts the following up on. I think he put this on Twitter. Oh no, it was a Facebook post. Quote: He was a per this is this is a Think Progress editor talking about the plumber who's come to fix a, a, an issue with plumbing in his house. I don't know what it is. Quote, he was a perfectly nice guy and a consummate professional, but he was also a middle-aged white man with a southern accent who seemed unperturbed by this week's news. This is right after Trump's election win. While I had him in the apartment, I couldn't stop thinking about whether he had voted for Trump, whether he knew my last name is Jewish, and how that knowledge might change the interaction we were having inside my own home. The uncertainty of the situation left Reznikov rattled for some time. Quote, I have no reason to believe he was a Trump supporter or an anti-Semite, but in my uncertainty, I couldn't shake the sense of potential danger. I was rattled for some time after he left. Uh, and then he said how ambiguous social interactions now feel unsafe and unpredictable in a way they never did before. Even if Trump is gone in four years, I don't expect to ever reclaim that feeling of security. That's just one more thing. If you voted for him, you voted for somebody makes a living in the media writing and thinking and this person is sharing with the world that he meets a middle-aged white man with a southern accent and instead of 
perhaps uh, microaggressing, but in a friendly way by asking him about his favorite barbecue or whether he enjoys hunting, which would be much more acceptable. He thinks that he must be a Trump supporter and therefore he's a threat and makes him feel unsafe. This is lunacy. I mean, this is therapy time. This isn't like, oh, let's all just let political bygones be bygones. People are out of their minds about this stuff. And if I can walk around the streets of New York City and assume that no one's going to pick a fight with me because of the few times I'm on CNN actually getting to represent conservative principles in a way that is real and uh, unfiltered. Well, no, it's always filtered through CNN, but then I think this guy can have a plumber who has a southern accent and is a white middle-aged man and not be quaking in his Crocs. I'm just guessing that guy wears Crocs. I don't know why. Back in a few. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we are joined by a new guest, first-time guest, James Kirkchick. Uh, he or Kirchick, rather, pardon me. He is a fellow with the Foreign Policy Initiative. He has a new article out in the Washington Post called "How Trump Got His Party to Love Russia," and he's also the author of the upcoming book, "The End of Europe: Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age." James, great to have you. Thank you for having me. Uh, James, tell me how Trump got his party to love Russia. This is the piece you have on WashingtonPost.com. What's going on here? Well, I think there's two groups, basically. Um, one are the opportunists, and this being Washington, I think that's most of the Republicans that we're talking about. Um, people who basically just seem untroubled by the various connections between Trump and Russia, his statements on Russia, that are very at odds with you know decades of Republican Party policy, uh, going back to the Cold War, obviously. Um, and a lot of Republican officials just seem to kind of, you know, look askance at this, and it didn't really seem to bother them. Um, I'm thinking of people like Newt Gingrich, people who should really know better. Um, and then the other group, I would say, is a more kind of hardened ideological um, faction, you could say, within the conservative movement that actually sees Russia as a potential ally uh, against Islamic terrorism, and they think that NATO expansion was really antagonistic and not worth it. Um, and that Russia can you know, basically be our friend because it's no longer communist. Um, and that the reason why we ought to have opposed Russia earlier was because it was godless and you know, opposed to the free market and all those other things that the Soviet Union uh, did. Uh, but now that the Soviet Union has gone, we should be friends with the Russians. Um, and so these are the, basically the, the two groups that I see. One's more opportunistic. One is more ideological. Um, but they basically seem to be on the ascent. Now, for those who say that Trump's rhetoric uh, doesn't trouble them because, well, his positions change and he had to get elected, maybe as he comes into office, he'll evolve on this stuff. I, I, I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows, but we'll just put that aside for a second. What are, when people talk about the troubling Russia connections, what are the ones that have, have really been established? Other than him thinking Putin is strong and smart and, and that stuff, I mean, what are the actual... Because it seems like there's a lot that's made of how Trump is so pro-Russia because it's he has interests in Russia. What are they? Mm -hmm. 
Well, we know, uh, first of all, it's hard to divine uh, the extent of his interest in Russia because to this day he refuses to return to release his tax returns. And presumably if he did that, then we would be able to find out. What we do know, his son, Don Jr., said at a public investment conference once in Moscow that a great deal of the Trump organization's investments and investors are Russian. So that's on the record. Um, and then during his campaign, he had numerous advisors who were very close to the Kremlin, not the least of whom was his uh, campaign chairman for a couple of months, Paul Manafort, who um, you know, was, a, was a hired hand for the pro-Russian president of Ukraine um, for several years, uh, the one who you know, fired on his own citizens and fled to Russia. Um, so those, I would say, are the two major connections that we're aware of publicly. Um, and, that's and that's obviously in addition to his, his public statements, which, as you said earlier, you know, he's, on many issues he's, he's shifted back and forth over the years, and it's hard to divine really where he stands. I will say on Russia, he's been very clear for many years um, that he is basically sees that, we, that the U.S. should have a rapprochement with Russia. He's been fairly consistent on that. Um, what would a smart policy, uh, smart Russia policy for the administration be? Well, I think it's certainly not what we've had for the past eight years under President Barack Obama. Um, and I think re recognizing that Russia is basically at the least an adversary, if not an enemy of the United States and the liberal international order. I mean, you can go through any issue um, from A to Z, and Russia is basically opposed to U.S. interests. They're basically playing spoiler. Um, we are not allies, and we don't really have much strategically in common, at least with this regime. If Russia was democratic, I mean, Trump says, wouldn't it be great to be friends with Russia? And I agree. It would be great to be friends with Russia, with North Korea, and with Cuba as well. The reason why the United States isn't friends with those regimes is because they're ruled by dictators. Um, so until Russia has a, you know, a, a functioning democracy, then I don't really see us having a productive relationship with them. Um, so I think we need to you know, basically contain them like we did during the Cold War. We need to increase our sanctions against them for all their horrible behavior. They're you know, invading Ukraine and annexing Crimea, their continued um, subversion of uh, democracy across Europe, supporting various extremists. Um, so you know, in increasing sanctions and just basically being clear-eyed about who the Russians are. And I feel that we haven't had that for the past eight years under Barack Obama, certainly. But I'm afraid that we're not going to get it under the incoming administration either. And to those who say that Russia is too big to ignore, obviously still a major nuclear power uh, with many thousands of, of nuclear weapons at its disposal, too big to ignore literally as a, as a landmass, right? it's an, an enormous country, yeah. and has uh, a pretty strong, even though it's military isn't perhaps what it once was, it's been able to flex its muscles and have a strong hand in geopolitical affairs well well outside of its borders, even outside of its periphery, given what's happened in Syria recently. Uh, it, it, there must, is, there, is there some common ground to start from to try and improve relations, or do, do you think that a, a policy of... Uh, if the policy is open containment, I mean, isn't that going to ratchet up tensions? Isn't that going to make things even more difficult in places where we're already at odds with Russia? I think tensions are going to be ratcheted up regardless. And it's, do you want them ratcheted up on our terms or, or, the, or the Russians' terms? Look, every president comes into office thinking that he can fix Russia. This happened with Obama. It happened with George W. Bush. Remember, he looked into Putin's eyes and saw his soul. I mean, this is, this is de rigueur in U.S. presidential administration history. I think we need to be realistic about what we're dealing with here. And this is a regime that is committed um, to the destruction of the liberal order that the United States has built and constructed and sustained 
for 75 years. So, uh, no, I think we do need to, as you would say, ratchet up the tensions, um, and we need to really revert back to a kind of Reagan-esque uh, policy, and that's to, you know, we win, they lose. Um, and I, is, is, that a, is that a scaled-down Cold War 2.0? Is it fair to call it that? It's different in many ways because, I mean, look, it's much more sophisticated what the Russians are doing. Back in the Cold War, we knew who the enemy was. They were communists, and they were supporting communists around the world and revolution around the world. You could pretty easily identify where people stood. Now you have everyone from you know, Marine Le Pen in France on the far right to the Syriza party in Greece, which is on the far left, and they are all basically sympathetic to Russia. So it's a much more complicated picture that we're dealing with. And it's also not a purely military one. I mean, back during the Cold War, you know, we had 500,000 troops in Europe, and we were concerned about a potential Soviet you know, military takeover of the European continent. That's why we were so invested in European security. It's not going to happen. We're not, we're, not, we're not expecting you know, Russian tanks to roll their way through Germany on the, on the way to France now. They have other sophisticated tools. It's the disinformation, as we've seen, which was so effective, I think, in the U.S. presidential election. It's corruption, it's bribery, it's buying uh, former European officials like Gerhard Schroeder or Berlusconi in Italy. Um, they're, they're very crafty at this, and it's, it's just a completely different battlefield than it was 30 years ago during, during the Cold War. And what does Putin's blueprint look like? Let's assume that the worst fears are true, um, uh, the worst fears are true that Trump is going to be far too friendly and open towards Russia, pliant even when dealing with Russia. Uh, if Putin gets his way, I assume that this ties also into your book, The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues yeah. and the Coming Dark Age, which we'll have you back on to talk about yeah. when it's when it's out in March. But without giving away the plot already or giving away too much of the book. Yeah. What does Putin's world look like? I think it's a world where where might makes right and basically where bullies get to you know get away with whatever they want. And it's a return to spheres of interests. Um, and so, you know, Putin would basically say to Trump, look, you guys can have the Americas. You can have Latin America. That's traditionally been the American sphere of interest. Do what you want. Let me deal with Eastern Central Europe, um, South Asia, and my part of the world. Uh, and I think that's wrong for several reasons, not least of which is that, as you mentioned earlier, Russia is the biggest country, the biggest landmass on Earth. So it pretty much gets to have whatever sphere of interest it says it wants. It it's, its periphery is really big. <laughs> it's a really big country. So they can pretty much dictate to us what they want. I think it's wrong morally. I don't think I think countries should I mean, they should have the right to choose their own security and political arrangements. And if Ukraine someday in the distant future uh, qualifies to be a member of the European Union and NATO and NATO and the EU want to let them in, I don't see why we should bow down to Moscow and say that that can't happen. Um, I don't think we should. It's basically appeasement. Um, and so I think, you know, we've, we've sacrificed so much blood and treasure um, over the past 75 years, making the world more safe for democracy, for freedom, for free markets. Um, and I think it would be a shame to see that crack and to see us in retreat on that. And I think that's, that's basically the world that we may be entering now. Do you see major disagreements, given that Trump has got uh, General Mattis and will have him in place at the Pentagon, and there are some other figures in the administration who there's at least reason to believe have a different view or a, a different proclivity towards Russia than Donald Trump does? Do, do you think this is going to be a major point of dissent early on in the administration? 
I'm not so sure about the administration. I think you're right about Jim Mattis. There was an article last week in The Washington Post already about there being some tension between him and the White House in terms of hiring uh, people. He wanted to hire some of the never-Trump national security Republicans who had opposed you know, Trump in the primaries and in the election. Um, but if you're looking at the way the rest of the administration is shaping out, um, it seems to be that it is, it is tilting in a more pro-Russian direction, certainly with the appointment of Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State. You know, this is a former head of a CEO of ExxonMobil. Um, and look, when your job is the CEO of ExxonMobil, it's to make deals, and especially to make deals in Russia. That's why he had such a great personal relationship with Vladimir Putin. And I'm not really sure that the skill set that one acquires when you're the CEO of an international oil company is really the same skill set that you should have when you're Secretary of State, when there are other competing interests, for instance, values and human rights in the interests of American allies in Central and Eastern Europe. These are not things that really factor into your mind when you're striking you know, oil and gas deals with Vladimir Putin. Um, so I, I would expect to see the most resistance coming from Congress. Uh, you're already seeing it from John McCain and Lindsey Graham, the more hawkish members of the Senate. Um, and this is why, again, I'm, I'm so d- d- disappointed in the Republican Party. I mean, which has traditionally been the more hawkish, certainly when it comes to Russia party, um, for decades. And to see them just basically collapse so easily because they're the nominal Republican, Donald Trump, who's the president, has this bizarre romance with a hostile foreign power, I think is really a shame. James Kerchick is a fellow with the Foreign Policy Initiative. He's got a book coming out in March, The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age. We'll have him back on when that hits the shelves. James, really appreciate you joining us today. Great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Team, we'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. You know, the, the French recently passed a law, the, the right to disconnect. It's very important for them. They can, uh, how do you say, I, I love that Matt Welch said that French people aren't French enough for Hollywood. So they have to get Americans that do ridiculous French accents. Totally believe it. Uh, I also know this when, when you hear some of the Australian accents out there, like, you know, Outback Steakhouse, like, you know, that's not how Aussies sound. I can't do the Outback Steakhouse voice, but that guy's clearly an American doing an Aussie accent. At least I'm guessing he is. Uh, but the French have the right to disconnect. They have the right to... Some of my French starts to turn into Transylvanian sometimes. I need to get these things clear in my head. I need the music in the back of like, da, 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 da. You know, the French and the harpsichord and on the street, merveilleux, parfait. All that stuff. So the French are saying that after a certain time, as a labor law, more or less, they don't have to respond to emails. They don't have to be responsive. Okay. Kind of like this. I remember when I was at the NYPD Intelligence Division, I had a BlackBerry, an unclassified but secure BlackBerry. Uh, or not, I shouldn't say it was, you know, secure in a private sector way. And they would uh, tell us, because sometimes they'd want us on very short notice, mostly because there were there was a lot of micromanaging, <clears throat> a lot of micromanaging going on in that particular unit. Um, 
really bad. It was when I it, it's when I understood the morale crushing nature of having bosses or a boss who is just constantly poking you on the shoulder. What are you doing? Where are you going? What are you doing? How's that coming? Where's it going? Uh, I was getting Lumberged left and right, but even even more annoying than Lumberg in some ways. But they told us that we had to have uh, our Blackberries with us, our work Blackberries with us, and on while we were sleeping. So if they had to call us, which granted really only happened a couple times, but if we were asleep, they could call us and we had to get up. And we'd say, well, what about worth the gym? They're like, keep your BlackBerry. What do you mean? Just keep it on you. Or if you're running on a treadmill, just put it on the treadmill. I'm like, okay, what about the shower? And they're like, fine, you have a 15-minute window where you can be in the shower. We expect a call back right away. And if you're in the shower more than once when we call, we're going to you know, have questions. And it just felt very, ugh, the electronic leash. Well, now the leash, in a sense, has been extended, although there's a convenience side of this that will be nice. New York City subways all have cell phone and Wi-Fi service as of now or a couple of days ago. Some, in some ways, this will be great because now I don't have to worry about getting stuck in the subway when I have a TV hit and not being able to even call them and say, this has almost happened to me a few times uh, at CNN, never at Fox because I always leave plenty of time to get to Fox. Uh, but now there's no escape, and now you're going to deal with loud subway talkers or loud cell phone talkers on the subway. I guess they're also loud subway talkers. So... There is no escape. I mean, once they really work out waterproof phones and that's a thing, it's going to people are going to be having them in the shower with them. And I don't mean that in a dirty way. I just mean in a, con- in a contact way. Uh, there's no escape. And I'm not sure that's a good thing. Uh, I'm starting to worry. Maybe we should all start going out into the woods and throwing our phones away for a couple of days at a time. Third hour coming up. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. 